Thank you for downloading this episode of My Perfect Console. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You'll get your episodes early and ad-free, learn about upcoming guests and receive bonus content. Your support also helps fund episodes just like this one. Head to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. My guest today is Senior Vice President of Blizzard Entertainment and General Manager of the Diablo video game series. After attending the University of Ottawa for computer science, my guest joined Microsoft as a Microsoft consultant before he moved to the company's games division to work on titles including Microsoft Train Simulator and the Xbox version of Counter-Strike. In 2005, he joined Epic Games, where as a producer he helped steer the delayed Gears of War back on track After working on the second and third games in that series, and Bulletstorm and Infinity Blade, he soon gained a reputation as a closer, someone able to get a blockbuster out of the door. My guest then moved to Irrational Games to help finish the troubled Bioshock Infinite, and in 2020 he joined Blizzard to oversee development of the Diablo series, the fourth entry to which launched to widespread acclaim in 2023. Welcome, Rod Ferguson. Hey, Simon, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Yes. So what's it like to to be the guy who only shows up at a game studio when things are going wrong? <laughs> I, uh, that's unfair, but to you, the places <laughs> I've gone. You know, it's part of what I love to do. I, I love that kind of going in and, and the firefighting aspect of it because it's really easy. I, 
I like making decisions and being decisive. And when you're trying to ship a game, that's when the decisions are the most critical and the kind of the most permanent. I was having a sort of a late night conversation with Ken Levine when we were shipping Bioshock Infinite. And he was saying that he loves making games, but he hates shipping them. <laughs> uh, and I said, I'm kind of the opposite. Like, I like making games a lot, but I love shipping them. Like, I love getting games out. And <laughs> that's kind of been what's been a bit of a whirlwind for me is over the last nine years. If you looked at, like, when I joined the Coalition, which is the Microsoft Studio in Vancouver in 2014 to now, basically, you know, I've shipped eight games in nine years. <laughs> And so that kind of, I like that pace. I like, I like, you know, and I think over the course of my career, if you look at it, it's about, you know, I've had about a 25 year, 24, 25 year career. And in terms of games, either I was fully responsible for or games I've helped out. It's been about a game a year. It's about mm-hmm. 24 games in 24 years sure. kind of thing. So That's a good rate. Yeah. As a, <laughs> as a, you know, as a production person or designer versus, I know like a lot of, our good friends in QA will go through like three, four or five games a year. But in terms of just sort of producing these AAA games, I, I just, I really like shipping. I really like getting games into players' hands. So as much as I enjoy the work of building a game, I really love that. Giving it to a player and letting them experience it and enjoy it. That's that's my favorite part. Well, you're definitely in the right job then. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was, I was, you know, being a bit facetious, you know, lots of the games that you've worked on were not, I imagine, in lots of trouble, but but there are some very right. high profile, problematic games that you've swooped in to, to help whatever it is that's blocking progress get out of the way. So, right. yeah, in all seriousness, what's the, what's the first thing you do when you turn up at the door, you know, to figure out what needs to happen to get things moving again? It's really kind of understanding where we are, like, that you really have to get a better, a sort of an honest assessment of where we really are. And that was one of the things that Bioshock Infinite was very, a big part of that. You know, I came in and, you know, you kind of observe, like you want to do that listen before you talk thing. And so I kind of come in and go, okay, I'm just going to listen. I'm going to attend the team meeting. I'm going to hear what's going on and attend the meetings. And, you know, the first team meeting I'm there and all the producers are standing up going, we're on time, we're on time, we're on time. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Like when I talk to senior management, they feel like there's a problem. But when I listen to the team, they're saying everything's on schedule. And so then I went back to my desk and I started to plot out like well, how I know to ship a game and how much time you need for certification and how much time you need for finalizing and bug fixing. And, you know, that I kind of said like, hey, your producers are all standing up saying around schedule. And even on like my first attempt at even putting anything together close to a schedule, you're like four months behind. Um, and so like, clearly there's a problem here. And so once I, once I recognize, okay, there's a problem, both sort of the experience of the people and, and how they were assessing schedule, then it was sort of like, okay, let's really try to break down the work. And that was one of the things we, we did was look at, okay, how many levels do we have? What are the 12 steps to complete a level? Okay. So if we have 12 levels and 12 steps, we have 144 things we have to do, like how many of them Mm. are done? And so you try to break down the work and and really understand what's left to do and what's, you know, what's the highest priority because there was things when they got there that weren't even designed yet or started yet. And so you're kind of going like, okay, let's deal with the risky stuff first and really dig into the unknown. I'd like to say that, you know, no one person can take a, a, a game, a AAA game with, you know, couple of hundred people on a team and no one person is going to make that game ship. It wasn't about me going in and shipping the game for them or doing anything like that. That it's just an organizing 
like structure. It's about coming in and making hard decisions and providing a path. And, and once they, once you can see the path and the team can kind of rally behind it and, and push towards it. And so it's, None. it's not about me swooping in to save the game. It's about me coming in and, pr- and laying out the path so that the team can execute against the path. I mean, I, you know, the way you describe it there, the 12 levels, you break them down, each level's got 12 things. Like that's like classic producery spreadsheet stuff, right? But I imagine yeah. that's only half of your job and the other half is sort of human skills of coming alongside creative people that have had a vision for a long time and you're winning them over and perhaps trying to convince them to cut things that they hold dear to them or whatever in order to make everything work. So what kind of like human techniques do you employ to get people (laughs) on side? I don't know. There's sort of just normal human stuff is sort of empathy and logic and being able to relate and understand the emotional side of that, those sorts of cuts. But like, I always think of it as sort of, you know, that you're design led, but sort of production enabled. And you don't want production to be saying no, no, no. You want to say you want as a producer, you want to be saying yes, but you want that yes to come with like, here's what it's going to cost. Like, I want what you want. I want the best game possible. And so if you're going to add this feature, I want it too. But hey, this is going to cost us three weeks or this is going to mean we need to cut another feature or like which one's more important to you. So it's more about helping people make informed decisions. Producers are going to hate this. And I don't mean this literally. But when I, I look at production as kind of being the talentless job because, you know, we, we don't draw, you know, we don't write, we don't, you know, uh, like we, we we organize and we, and we, like I said, we inform, make, help people make informed decisions. But so I, as a, you know, early in my career, I was like, I'm the, I'm the cheapest person in this room right now. Like if we had things like, oh, we have to work on localization text for the UI, and we were a very small team. And I'm going, if I get an engineer to do this, I've taken eight hours away from an engineer who's very expensive in terms of their value to the to the game. Or I could take the next eight hours and I could do it. And I consider myself to be cheap slash free. So I'm going to go do it. And I'm not, not going to put it on to other people. And when you come in with that sort of attitude of how can I help, I found I could win people over pretty quickly to this idea that I'm just here to try to help make sure we get the game done. And that is the best game possible as opposed to I'm here to walk around with my clipboard saying no and and try and enforce certain rules or whatever, right? And so that's a big part of it is just people helping people recognize you're a team player and, you, and you're willing to compromise and you're just trying to make the best game you can. Yeah, interesting. I'm sure, you know, lots of people who make game systems will be listening to this and I'm sure they've had experience of external producers that do have the clipboard. But I think it says something like, how many games you've shipped, how far you've progressed in your career, that that's that sort of different approach, how successful it's been maybe. Yeah, and that's something I always look for, you know, when you look at production, that that shift from the new producer who thinks like they got into production because they want to be in charge, which is never how that, you're not going to be successful, that's why you got into production. And the producer who says no versus the producer says yes, but, you know, right, like, the no producer is generally, oh, I have a deadline and it doesn't matter about the quality of the game or it doesn't matter about what we're trying to accomplish. I, my, I mean, measured that we reach Tuesday and if it's not Tuesday then I say no versus the, oh, okay, again, I, I support your idea and I want to help you, but here's what that means. That means we have to get rid of something else or we're going to move the date or we're going to have to, like, and it's more of a conversation. And I see that as part of your seniority is that young producers or new producers will be very 
clipboard and know and more senior producers will be the i recognize that there's nuance and that's the thing is I, i'm okay working in the gray i would rather make a decision and fix it along the way than try to wait for the perfect amount of information um and to make a decision and so that's what used to frustrate me all the time was that i'd go into a place and after you've been doing it for a while you kind of get a producer spidey sense that you can go this is behind or this is going to take longer than you think and people are like well we should really go away and I'm going to take the next two weeks to really understand all the implications and the dependencies. And I'm going to come back with a super accurate and you're like, well, or (laughs) we could know that we could intuitively know this isn't on the right on track. So take the next two weeks to actually work on it instead of taking the next two weeks to analyze it. Because the thing is that it's video game development and it's always going to be changing and it's always going to be. So even if you do analysis for two weeks to get the perfect answer, the next day, something happens and that analysis is worth nothing. And so you've just wasted two weeks. Right. And so, you know, let's just move forward. Like find, talk about it, find a good path, but then start moving. What do you like to go on holiday with? Do you like to like plan your schedule or are you like, let's just get out there and, and get into it? <laughs> uh, no, I, my wife, like she's, she's a good planner, but she also knows that we need to have lots of like free, like go out and explore type stuff. So I benefit from having a, a planner in my life that makes sure that we at least do some cool stuff. Michael Caps, who was the president of Epic, he had two producers at the time, and I, he had one that um, who was very organized and very structured and had everything down to the minute. And you know, was very I was always impressed with his ability to organize. And I was a little bit more by feel, and I was a lot more like about the game and understanding your people and all this stuff. And he was always like, if I could just get the two of you to become one person, I'd have the perfect producer. And I'm like, <laughs> I, and, uh, cause I don't have the anality, if that's a word, I don't have the, that I want to get in and, and make a schedule to the minute and all this stuff. I, I, cause I, I recognize that we're just a bunch of people trying to do an impossible task. And so you have to be okay to live in the gray, you know? And so that's where I, I prefer to be. And you know, when nowadays you have huge teams of producers, but when I did Gears One, like I was the I was the only producer on it. And when you think about okay, you've got a hundred people and only one person is a producer, you have to be okay with like, I'm gonna focus on this today and all the other things are gonna start drifting away from me. And so once I'm finished with this, I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna pull something back in and tighten it down and while the other things are starting to drift. And so it's the spinning plate thing where like okay, how do I keep some things spinning fast? And oh, this one's going to go slow for a while, you know, and you just have to, you get comfortable with that notion of, I don't quite know what's going on over there, but it'll be okay because I have smart people over there doing the work kind of thing. That's brilliant. I like the idea that uh, your wife is your producer in life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. oh, very much so. She's also my CFO and she's, yeah, that, no, exactly. <laughs> Right, we better come to the premise of the podcast, Rod. So I've asked you to pick the five video games uh, that you would like to put on your ideal fictional games machine. Very excited to talk to you about these. Um, yeah, why don't you tell us about the first one from August 1991? Yeah, so I kind of think when I talked to Tom about his conversation with you. Tom Bissell. Tom Bissell, yeah. And when the, the premise is interesting. And so I was like, okay, but I don't know that I'm going to play along exactly. Because I was like, you know, if Simon's question was, you're going to be alone on a desert island and you have one console for the rest of your life, what games would you want on that console? That's a very different, then my logic kicks in where like, it's got to be Minecraft because that's a forever game or like all these games that have no end, right? And sure. Or if I took it as like, what's your most favorite game of all time? As a person who's been gaming for 45 years, I... 
like games are of a time. And so what was my favorite 30 years ago may not be my favorite today. And so when, when you asked the question about the perfect console, I, I decided to look at games that I still think about today that had an impact on me in one way or another in terms of either as a gamer or as a person or as a person who makes games. Uh, and I also like, I assumed one of the rules was you can't pick anything you've worked on. So I've, I've avoided, you know, DF- <laughs> that's not a rule in fact, but <laughs> yeah. so if you want to change it all to Gears of War. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll be one, two, three, four, and five Gears one through five is, is my answer. No, but like as Diablo has had a, an impact on me in a pretty big way. And, but I again, because I'm working on Diablo, I left it off, but okay. Yeah. So, so game number one, um, NHL hockey, uh, for the Sega Genesis. The reason of for that is that it was a game that really brought my friends and I together. Like it became a like a really big social thing for us because I think the way that Madden does that for Americans, like being Canadian, uh, hockey was the thing you kind of went to, and the Sega Genesis was there. This was the first one. You know, I had a friend who at the time was working security, and he's like, "Hey, the store is having a sale, and we I have to stay overnight there to protect it, so the insurance will cover it." can you come and hang out with me to keep me awake? And I was like, sure. And so we brought the Sega Genesis with hockey and, and grabbed a small CRT. And then we just sat there all night playing hockey together to stay oh, awake and, and do the thing. And even for my wedding, so uh, I got married in 92 and we decided to go down to Atlantic City for my bachelor party, uh, we and three friends. And so we're like, well, it's like an eight hour plus drive from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada to Atlantic City. So, you know, let's have something to do. And so I went to the hardware store and got a splitter for the the lighter. Those days you use the lighter to power, you know, your electronics in a car. We had this really tiny CRT and the Sega Genesis plugged into this lighter splitter in the back of this minivan. So there'd be a driver, a passenger, and then two people in the back playing Sega Genesis wow. as we drove down the highway. Like now I know this may not sound like in today's day and age, like you're like, whatever, that's an iPad in the back of my car. But in 1992, like, that, was, that was somewhat unheard of to see a car go by with like a glowing screen in the back with two people playing hockey in it. And it was just a way that my friends and I bonded. And to this day, that series uh, has been a love. I've had a love-hate relationship with like the NHL hockey series because being on an annual cadence, they change the game uh, every year. And you never kind of know what you're going to get from a controls perspective or a co-op. Like my brother and I, like, the way my brother is nine years older than me and, and games are how we stay uh, in contact. In fact, I just rec- realized that I hadn't seen my brother in person for like nine years, but we talk all the time playing destiny two or playing, you know, Diablo or whatever. But we, we always had this dream. I'm like, okay. And there was at least one version that allowed it where we're like, we just want to start a playoffs in the hockey and the two of us are co-op on the same team. And we just try to win the Stanley cup. And 
for whatever reason, the series refuses to allow you to play that way. So it's always like, no, no, you're supposed to play online against other humans. They're like, we don't want to. And so we have this like, I want to play hockey together. And we're like, oh, another year. So every year we're like, maybe 24 is the year. And you're like, no. So it was like, okay, now we're like, maybe 25 is the year we could play co-op playoffs. So you'll have to join the company and fix it. You know, it's funny is my brother did say that to me. He's like, I don't know what you're working on right now, but you need to get over to EA and fix hockey for us. And I'm like, I don't think it works that way, dude. I appreciate the vote of confidence. Though. Amazing. Which, uh, yeah, which team do you play as, I guess? Um, nowadays, uh, I'm kind of a fickle fan that I, I tend to follow the home team. And so when I was in Ottawa, you know, I was a Senators person. When I lived in North Carolina, I was a Canes person. But I really got caught up in the Vancouver Canucks when I was up there uh, at the coalition and I got season tickets. And so now every time I'm, you know, if I play a game in, in uh, the latest NHL, I'll, I'll create a, a Canucks, a version of the Canucks to play. So which is good. Okay. Uh, I'm asking our politeness. I have no idea what words you've just said there, but <laughs> <laughs> does Wayne Gretzky play for them? <laughs> You may be a little dated on that, but that's fine. Oh, no as long mind. as we don't start talking about football, we'll be fine. In terms of your football, we'll be fine. So he can embarrass me that with that or cricket, we'll be good. <laughs> so yeah, tell, I mean, you talked about your brother there. Tell me, so you, yeah, you grew up in Canada. What was what was that like? What were your, what were your parents up to and all of that? Um, it was uh, it was interesting. Like it was a bit of a, we were pretty poor, you know. So my dad was in the military. He was a captain in the Canadian Navy. And, uh, but he, he died when I was four and, um, well, due to a heart attack. And so my mom went, she, she took, picked me up and we went home back to where she's from, which is Newfoundland. And, and we lived in a trailer park. Like we were, like I said, we were pretty poor and that's why I didn't really get that much into gaming and stuff beyond the, you know, the arcade because of that we were, and but eventually we came back to Ottawa where I was actually born and that's kind of where like around age 10 is where the, the kind of my brother who was nine years older than me. And so he, in a lot of ways growing up, I felt like an only child because he was off to university as I was kind of coming up. And so that's why I found gaming was so great is that we're such an age difference that I was kind of the annoying little brother, like, you know, take your brother with you kind of stuff, which of course I'm, I know me didn't love him, but like he was the first one to bring essentially a computer into our house. And so when I look back and go, okay, besides arcades, like what, what's my first home gaming experience? I go back to like the TRS-80 computer that he had and playing like Olympic decathlon where everybody would be at the kitchen table set up with no chairs so people could swap in and out to like, you know, use the keyboard to run and jump over hurdles and do all the decathlon mm. events and things like that. Or there's a game at the time called Santa Paravia where you're like a ruler of the land and how much rice, rice do you give to your people? And But that sort of, really had an impression on me uh, at that time about watching all these people kind of come together to play on this black and white um, computer. And even so like I went with my brother to visit him where he was like in Edmonton or Calgary and he went to a friend's house and they were hooked to the university and I could play adventure on a computer that had no monitor. It was essentially a printer that was connected to the university. Right. And so mm. you would type in your command, you like go north and it would go and like and write and print it out on a piece of paper. And then it would it would send back like what happened and it would go, you know, your result. And then you would type and it would like and that's my attempt at a dot matrix you know, printer. Sound. That was very good. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. I I'm I'm available for Foley if anybody <laughs> needs me, by the way. Uh, so, so there was that kind of like early experiences where it was like where it really caught my attention. And 
it's kind of one of those things where I look back and like I was really more computer oriented than I was console. And so that's why if we go too far down this path, I'm going to say some things that are going to both embarrass me and make people really mad at me because they're just about the kind of weird kind of gaming history I have, which is, you know, I kind of see like there's sort of two roads early on. And when you go back to the history of gaming where people are like, oh, I went Sony PlayStation or the Nintendo and or you went Apple, like Apple IIe kind of sure. thing, right? And yeah. I was in the I was in the Apple IIe camp. So I was Oh, you were you know, yeah. So I was playing, you know, Choplifter and Wizardry and that kind of stuff, but I wasn't playing any of the console games. I didn't get a, a real con you know, Sega Genesis was one by like my for like my then girlfriend, now wife, I think I was nineteen or I think it was nineteen, got me my first Nintendo console. Like she got me a, a SNES at that time and and so that was this whole, okay, this got introduced into our lives, but it wasn't from me. It was a gift from her. And uh, so it was That's like, interesting. I think uh, Clint Hawking said as well, his first console was an Xbox because he was just, you know, back on, like you say, home home computers all through, all through the 90s. I had, because of friends, I had access to, you know, I played on a television and had my thumbnails separate because of the way the disc worked on the, <laughs> that controller, you know, or the ColecoVision that we tried to use for school projects as well. And, and you yeah. know, like I, 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 and like, you know, the Atari 2600 and all that. Like I had access to a bunch of different things. The first computer that we owned was a TRS-80 color computer. Oh. And it came with a whopping 4K of RAM. And you played games by just putting a cartridge in. And the first game that we had was like essentially a, a knockoff version of Missile Command. And that was sort of the first thing that was in, in our house as a, as a thing to do back, like I said, when I was, uh, you know, I don't know, 12 years old or something. How'd you convince your mom to get that? Because I guess it was, you know, from what you described, it sounds like that would have been a big outlay for her. Yeah, it was actually, um, so at that point, we had, um, my stepdad was, um, was a person who brought it in. And so it was part of like what I was interested in was computers. And that was something that I was really, I got really mad about because one of the things going to high school, um, place close to Wilfrid Laurier, they, their program kind of, so computer program really kicked in. Like computer science was available once you got to grade 11 and 12. And I did grade nine and grade 10. And I'm like, okay, and I'm, take, yeah, I'm taking typing classes, which is at that time is not keyboarding. Like it's literally how to fill out things in triplicate. Like if you're going to be a secretary or whatever, like how to apply the, the whiteout so you can type over it. And, but it was the only way to really get keyboarding skills at the time. And just when I'm like, okay, next year I get to go to computer science. My stepdad got posted back to new, I got to post to the Gander Newfoundland where, um, my mom was, uh, where, like where my family was from. And so I did my last two years of high school there. But when I got there, I'm like, okay, so what computers in there have? And they're like, mm, yeah, not so much. Like, that's not really, we don't have computer science. And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? You just, so it was just <laughs> everything I kind of put on hold for that. Like I kind of, and it wasn't really until I was able to come back to Ottawa after high school do computer science. Well, we'll come back to that. But uh, for now, let's come to your second game on your console. So this is like, I'm not sure how old you would have been here, but a little older perhaps. So from 1998, what's uh, what's this one? Yeah, so this is, um, people normally, it was just called Tribes for me, but the full name was Star Siege Tribes.
this is the first game that I really took seriously, like as a as a competitor. First of all, I love the game. The spin fuser weapon is my favorite weapon of all time, I think, in the history of, of video game weapons. Maybe in a Lancer close second. I like team play where you're playing a kind of position and tribes have this real like, okay, yeah, my job is to go put out rear ammo stations for the heavies or on the front lines, or you pick your class essentially, or like whether you're a heavy or a scout or whatever, and then you play that position and teams did well if you had a, like a, a plan. And I remember that like at that time we, we had a clan that we actually put on a bulletin board system to say recruiting and we had to have tryouts. Like we would go in the game and you would join and we would watch you and assess you and decide whether you were good enough to join our team or not. Do a little interview. But that's the notion of like, okay, we're going to go on to this you know, map called Broadside, which is, has two floating bases. And it was all about how quickly can you set up turrets and defenses and and so it was really this like, okay, we know what the first five minutes looked like. We all do this. We all do that. We all did, We all had a game plan. And there was something about that feeling of being in a team and having a position and having, because like everybody loves Call of Duty, but it's a little bit of a hornet's nest of like, we're going to put 12 people in the map and they're kind of doing their own thing. Um, and so you're kind of 12 independents. But when you play tribes, you really felt like you were, you were part of a team and you had a role to play. And if you didn't play your role, then other people were, were going to suffer because of it. I still go back to that idea of having tryouts and going like, okay, you, you have to have this base set up for defense in three minutes go, like, we're going to watch you, you know, like that kind of stuff. I, that It really st stuck with me about how serious you can become when you're sort of in that world, that what would be much more than just a recreational thing and became like this thing of pride where you're kind of like sure, you're doing tryouts and stuff. I thought it was Organizing funny. a team. Yeah. Yeah. I, had looked, I I didn't know the game actually. I was reading up on it before this and there was a YouTube video that someone brought out not that long ago saying how it was the greatest first person shooter ever made oh, <laughs> and all I, that stuff. So. Yeah, absolutely. Like and you think like when, when skiing was discovered. So there's a notion now, like a big map called Raindance that has got this huge hill, rolling hills. Like it's a big open world kind of like a very large map for a shooter. But there was this notion that like you use spacebar to jump. Eventually they discovered that if you kind of like hold the spacebar while you're going downhill, you would kind of micro jump your way down. And so you would accelerate down the hills. So they called it skiing. <laughs> and it was, it was a bug, but it created this mobility where you could build up all this momentum going down so that you would kind of like rocket up the other side and over. So it was a way to move between places really quickly. And they didn't, they didn't fix it as a bug. It became a feature and it was just so. <laughs> I love it. That's where you fell in love with bugs. That's your, uh, yeah, exactly. that's your origin story. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and the spin fuser, because it's a slow projectile, it, like, a, it, like a spin fuser, people don't know, which probably because of 1998, no one does. But it's basically think of it as something that shoots like an, an energy frisbees. And so it was a slow projectile. So there was this satisfaction of leading someone. And and when it hit, it blew up. It had an error as a fact. I got an explosion. So you could see somebody going along and you would track them and then you would send the disc out. Okay. And then your perfect moment was when the disc and the player like met at the same place in the map. And so the, the satisfaction of a well-timed spin fuser is just so gratifying. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So, right, you... um you do get to study computer science after all, and then after you graduate, you, you rock up at Microsoft as a Microsoft consultant. What's, what did that job entail? Uh, okay, so full disclosure, I didn't actually graduate. Okay. So I, I attended, I'm two credits short, um, and the reason I'm two credits short, you're going like, wow, you're only two credits short, why, should, why would you go finish that? That seems stupid that you wouldn't do that. One of the credits is calculus. Right. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to go back to calculus at any point in time and be like, yeah, this is a breeze. So uh, I feel like I've been successful enough with it, the actual diploma that I'm sure. just going to move forward. But, yeah. um, but, but basically, I started my own business and, um, you know, I started programming. I got a summer job doing COBOL programming um, as an independent, like as a, as a contractor for the government. I end up doing this freelance computer programming work. And one day I end up on a project that is being run by Microsoft, by a Microsoft consultant that is basically doing a time tracking system for the Department of Justice. I, we, I get to a situation where I'm like interviewing the lawyers to get requirements and I'm then bringing those requirements to the programmers to say this is what they're looking for. And the, the Microsoft consultant at the time said like, hey, you're really good at this. Like we need people like you who can kind of be more like a um, you know, a business consultant who could actually talk the language of the client, but also talk the language of the programmer. You should, you should really try and see if you can come work at Microsoft, which and I didn't feel technical enough, but I said, I'm like working for Microsoft. You know, I'm just a small, small town boy from Canada, like working at Microsoft sounds amazing. So mm. I, I went for it and, and I got it, which was amazing. So what that, what Microsoft consulting was, was like a post sales technical support. So the, you know, an enterprise company or government would buy, you know, millions of dollars worth of software, MT and SQL Server, and they wouldn't necessarily know how to get it all going. And so they would hire Microsoft Consulting to come in and set it up for them. Man. You know, the companies places are spending millions and millions of dollars on software. And we would come in and we would charge a very high rate. Our daily, our per diem was very high. It was $1,500 a day for us to come in and help you. And I always was, I was confused by that at first because I was like, I don't understand. Like they just spent $30 million on software and we come in and now it's $1,500 a day for each person they add. I got like, why? And they said, well, it's not about really the revenue of that you're generating. It's about how important you are to them. If you are free, they don't care about you. And so, because you have no value. But if you walk in the door and go, hi, I'm Rod, I'm $1,500 a day. It's amazing how quickly your office is there, your computer's set up, <laughs> how quickly they want you to be effective and working because you're so expensive. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was actually a little bit of a lesson around perceived value that if you have something that someone perceives as not having value, they treat it differently than something they have a perception. And it's the same way, I don't know, like you probably have this way with wine. Like if you drink a $9 bottle of wine and you drink a $50 bottle of wine, whether they taste one tastes better or not, you kind of enjoy the $50 more just because it feels like it should be more. You know what I mean? Right. And that was kind of that notion of like, oh, I get why we're not free because then, then we don't get anything done because nobody cares. Like we're just tourists. Right. So. But anyway, so uh, as they say, long story long, the I end up getting really good at teaching this one course about how to make software called Microsoft Solutions Framework. And so that's why I start doing like, these three-day classes all the time for enterprise customers. 
and they say, oh, we're going to make another version of this course. Would you, can we transfer you to Redmond to work on campus to make the next version? And I was like, go work at the mothership. Absolutely. And <laughs> I, you know, I took my wife dragging and screaming. She was not happy about going at that time to leave for the States. And then I did that for, we made, I, sh I shipped that version of the course. And then I was like, oh, what, what do I want to do next? And that's when I did, I got on to Microsoft Train Simulators, my first game. Had that always been the dream where you like, um, I'm, I'm at Microsoft and I'm working with the DOJ, but where I really want to be is, uh, is, you know, working on Halo or whatever. <laughs> well, it was always, like I said, I've been playing games a lot. Like on my, it's one of those things where, you know, you do the thing you love and you work a day in your life kind of thing. Sure. Um, because I came into games late. If you think about, like, I started my career in games in, like, roughly 1999. And so at that point, I'm 31. <laughs> so it, I'm not like, oh, I dropped out of high school to make video shareware games and in plastic bags and ship it out. It didn't, for whatever reason, as a, as a being in Canada at the time, I, just, I guess I just didn't have the vision, but I just didn't feel like it was doable. I just didn't feel like this kid from Midland or whatever. I'd, it just felt like the thing other people did. Like, the people in California do this kind of thing not some kid in ottawa or whatever right so it wasn't until i got to microsoft and i looked around and said like, we're making games right now flight simulator gets made here there's like deadly tide and all these other games that are coming through they're trying to build up a gaming business like i could take the thing i do every night and turn it into what i do during the day as well yeah. and so let me go see and ruin uh, it forever <laughs> ruin my hobby yeah. <laughs> yeah. exactly never look at games the same ever again so, so yeah but at the time man it was funny because i was like how can i get into games and I, I look at the internal board at microsoft and there was one job available because the xbox wasn't out yet and so the only gaming job they had in the whole company was the third producer on flight sim and that producer was in charge of the ground textures like the basically the world <laughs> anybody listening like go look up Microsoft Flight Simulator in 1999 and look at what the ground textures look like. They look like like chessboards. Like it was so low res and and to think that your job was just to focus on these this 2D very pixelated nothing like it is today. But I was like, you know what? A foot in the door, like whatever it takes. And it was mm -hmm. just so happened that the person who was hiring for that, a gentleman by name Andrew Silverman, that day opened up a, a job to be the the main and only producer on Train Sim. And so when I talked to him, he's like, oh, you're, you know, I'm happy to interview for either position. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> I could deal with these sort of messy ground textures where I could have my own whole game doing trains. And so like, I think I'll do the train things. And so I interviewed for that and, and got that. And you were off. Yeah. And I was off. And then six months later, like Xbox kicked off and then uh, I worked on Bloodwake. And I was basically, if you look at like I shipped Train Sim and my first Xbox game, which was Bloodwake. Within six months of each other, I'm the I'm the first producer to ship a PC and Xbox game like within the within six months of each other. You know, in terms of uh, you know managing both those projects at the same time was crazy, but it was uh, amazing. Uh, it was fun. Well, this is a really good point to come to your third game, which is very relevant to the point at which we've we've reached you in your story. So tell us about this one. Yeah, so this is this game is Halo, the original Halo that came out when Xbox launched um, and, or. The original Xbox launched in November uh, 2001. 
And the reason I say a lot of people will pick Halo 2 because it, Halo 2 was when Xbox Live became a thing and you were playing kind of over, you know, you weren't doing just LAN parties, you were able to do kind of internet gaming and stuff. But the stuff that came out of Halo as somebody who was kind of behind the scenes, this this one is more like, well, of course, everybody loves the game and I can't hear mm. the monks chanting with it getting goosebumps and all that stuff. <laughs> but but as a developer, it was such a education because Bungie at the time wrote this white paper because as far as we were concerned, or at least as far as I was concerned, they cracked the code. Like at that time, the idea of a shooter, especially a dual stick, like GoldenEye had success, obviously, but like a dual stick shooter on a console was <clears throat> laughed at. It was like, there's no way you can, you can't do like, oh, with a, the precision of a mouse and the headshots and the speed at which you can turn, like nobody's going to want to play a first person shooter on console dual stick. Yeah, it was a joke. I remember, you know, the, and the, just the general idea of the Xbox, people were like, what, the, what, why are Microsoft doing this? And, and they're making it all, and they've got a shooter as a launch title. It was, you know, people were so skeptical, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And so when you played it for the first time and you started to see a little bit of the magic of, oh, they're using a larger circle reticle instead of a precision point reticle so that instead of saying, I want to shoot this monster in the left eyeball, you just say, I want to shoot this monster in the head. Like you're able to do what you were trying to do, you know, with just a slight, okay, just turn down your precision a little bit. But they wrote a white paper as part of that work. And that white paper became a Bible to me because it was all about how they did it. I had not understood things like gravity wells and reticle adhesion and all this stuff that all the things people didn't necessarily know was happening in the background. The idea that as you move a reticle over a target, that the reticle slows down so you mm -hmm. have time to let off the stick or that. That's a gravity well. Yeah, exactly. Or we'll pull right. the reticle towards a particular place. Or there's that friction side, which slows it down or that bullets will bend slightly. And so if you're going to miss by just a little bit, the bullet will bend in. So you hit, right? Like Scandalous. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> but there's all these assists that are going on that really help you understand about what it means to do console shooting. And that was like that white paper, like I said, you know, when I started on Gears of War and even Counter-Strike Xbox, like I I was the publishing producer. And so it was, these were the types of things we had to talk about it. Like, how does it feel to move a reticle across the screen, across targets? Like it should not hitch, but it, it should slow. Cause again, you're you're trying to allow for a player's reaction time to let off the stick to say, cause what would, without a, without a, that kind of sense of adhesion, what would happen is that you would start to go over the target. You go, yes, your brain would say stop and then it would overshoot, mm -hmm. right? And so you were always missing because you were constantly going past it. And so that notion of it slowing briefly as it went over, you know, that was a huge thing that you had to think about in terms of that. It's all designed to make the player feel more talented than they are, basically, to flatter them, really, this kind of thing. Kind of, but it's not, it's not meant to be like, make you feel more talented than you are. It's meant to be how to translate the player's intent correctly right my intent is to shoot this monster in the head and i'm doing that through this dual stick controller like what how do i translate that intent as opposed to you're crappy and i'm going to make okay. you good it wasn't meant I to see. be that it was meant to like hey like how do i translate your intent and there's other learnings there too like when they did after they shipped they did like a post-sales survey and said what's your favorite part about halo and the majority of people came back with mission four which was the beach mission wow. and called the sound cartographer i believe and and 
And it was this idea that like, oh, if you're going to be somewhere for a long period of time, people want to have blue skies and rolling weight. Like they, it can't always be post-apocalyptic. It can't always be <laughs> super dark because people want that break and they want to be in a place they want to be. Yeah. And so <laughs> I carry, like you can talk to any anybody who's worked with me on Gears of War over the five games, six games. Like I've asked for, okay, you're on, we've, we've built four multiplayer maps that are dark and stormy and night or whatever like where's my blue sky i need no clouds i need sunshine you get rid of the brown turn the brown down <laughs> yeah look just you what you want you need a respite occasionally so if in the map rotation yeah one of them is a little bit more happier a little more blue sky that you go okay I, I can go back to it later but but i mean all that was a one-to-one to that survey about the most popular halo level was the i want to i want to you know do battle on the beach and under a blue sky yeah i'm sure it still is i mean it's a remarkable piece of design that that level uh silent cartographer isn't it <laughs> okay we better come back to your story because time marches on uh, rod so <laughs> <laughs> yep tell us uh yeah so so you 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 then start we're going to wind forward a little bit i guess so yeah you join gears of war and get that game back on the track and ship some of those and you know you've really worked on some right. very you know some of my favorite games bullet storm you know I, I absolutely love shadow complex was fantastic as well what's your what's been the 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 best fun to work on out of all of these titles for you oh mm, they all have different i don't know there's like i have different memories of like each one like some of them like gears one was so uh, you know, I was employee number 63 at Epic and the we did this Hail Mary of like changing this game uh, to be able to ship it. And it was a lot of crunch for a long period of time. Uh, and it's the fact that we were able to ship it, like I, the, the relationship we built with the team and the people, like each game has its own sort of story to it. The chair games like Fiddy Blade and Shadow Complex, I was really more of a trying to just help. Like I didn't really, I wasn't the day-to-day person, but it was sort of that notion around my ability to close and so same thing with unreal 3 like i i wasn't in day to day but they were getting to the point where they were struggling to close in terms of triage and so they were like rod you're really good at triaging bugs and getting people can you come and run our our sessions of, of triage and so a lot of that was like as the sort of as i moved up in the production ladder at epic i would help out in terms of helping them make hard decisions and it wasn't so it's on my resume, but it's not like, oh, Rod led Infinity Blade or, or Shadow right, Complex. Sure. It's just that they were like, hey, we're at a place where we need to start getting the bug count down and then we need to start shipping. Could you come and help us? And so that was kind of, and same thing with like Bulletstorm was mainly Tanya uh, Watson, at, uh, who was the producer for that. But uh, the campaign was so large that I ended up becoming the producer for the multiplayer side of Bulletstorm. So, Got it. Right. Yeah. So it's those sorts of things where you're sort of helping out along the way. But yeah, no, they're all, they were all like, I remember like the 2 a.m. ping pong matches in the kitchen at Epic, you know, waiting for a build to come out. And there's something about that time, you know, when you think about the early 2000s and shipping games, that there's something about that time that was different than it is today. That it just, it, I, I look, it was very hard. And, but it, I look back fondly in terms of the relationships I built and we were able to accomplish. It's a delicate conversation. I had Peter Molyneux on here who was talking about, and he, you know, I had to help him out a bit because it sounded a bit like he was sort of, um, you know, talking about all his fond memories of crunch, but he was making the point that sometimes 
when you're all together and you're a bit younger and you're really working on something very hard, it's like, you know, being on a U-boat or something, you know, that <laughs> it, bond, it bonds you, right? Uh, it, you know, for whatever the problems are systemically around some of that stuff, like there can be very compelling, vivid memories attached, I suppose. Oh, yeah. It's like doing a university project. It's just, some, it's about focus. It's about this idea where the world kind of slips away and for some period of time, you have one focus and that's all your focus. And that that clarity and the having to kind of endure it bonds people together. As right. they say that, you know, people in the trenches, they, they have the strongest relationships. So I would never go and say, this is the way to make games because clearly it, it, you know, it, it takes a toll. But for those who, when we didn't know any better kind of thing back in the day, it definitely, like soldiers in a war kind of way, like my, my, my wife, she does refer to it as a tour of duty. Like every time I did a game, she called it a tour of duty that you're going off to war. And you're going to go ship that game. And, you know, and so that's how kind of how we thought about it. Well, I mean, I imagine after you've done this a few times in terms of coming in and triaging, to use the term you used, you sort of start to see some patterns that uh, teams are mistakes that are being made over and over again. What's the what's what's the most common one that I've seen, you know, the sort of difficulties that teams can get themselves into on these very large, expensive projects. Lack of focus. I think people can get sort of overwhelmed by the numbers. Uh, so they're just like, oh, we have uh, treating every bug like it's of the same importance. So they go, we have 3,000 bugs and da, 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 da. And I'll go like, well, you have 3,000 bugs, but you have 100 like critical bugs. <laughs> so, you know, so what are, what are we working on first? And it's actually tough with, a, you know, if you have an immature team, they can kind of lose their focus on their prioritization. Whereas if you have a mature team, they can manage that much better in terms of, hey, I'm going to work on my high priority thing, but I only got a half an hour before I go home. So I'm going to go work on a small thing. So you can kind of get a little bit of everything done. But, and then I think the blinders you can get during triage, which is when you spend six hours a day, like a, there were times when we were doing three triage sessions a day. We would do a morning one, we'd do an afternoon one, and we would do an evening one. And so when you're just sitting in a conference room for six hours a day, looking at lists of bugs, you can forget what you're shipping. Um, right. And so you get this sort of view of like, everything's wrong and it's the worst game ever. And it's so bug ridden. Everything's and, broken. Yeah. And so you'd have to like I'd, I'd have people go play the game before the next triage session to remind themselves like, oh, it's actually, it's not that bad. Yeah. It, it feels terrible to sit there and go through 400 bugs in a session, but remember that the game's actually great. These are not all these are in your face all the time kind of thing. So, so managing that and knowing how to prioritize, I think is something I've been thinking about doing a talk on actually is giving a, a, a talk around how to triage and how to prioritize and, and you know, why you do certain things. Ooh. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm too, too long out of the game, but I feel like that's. I think it'll be useful. Yeah, Definitely. Right, let's come to your fourth game then. Rod, I'm very excited to talk about this one. No one's picked this before, so tell us about it. <laughs> so I was like, I want to find games. I'm, I'm not going to do The Last of Us, and all the, I'm not going to do all the ones that everybody calls out all the time. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off. So this is, again, part of my, I was an Apple II person, so I didn't go console route. So really my big, other than like the Sega Genesis, my biggest console sort of going into it was the Xbox. And as part of my job, and that really opened my eyes to a lot of console gaming. But so this is a game in 2008 called Lost Odyssey.
it's essentially my first, again, I'm going to make everybody mad at me. It's essentially my first JRPG. So this is the part I told you when I tell people this, I'm going to get very, my Twitter is going to blow up because I, as a, someone who's been gaming for 45 years, I have never played a mainline Final Fantasy. Still never. Still never. So okay. I've played Final Fantasy Tactics and like the kind of stuff, but. Oh, that's the best one anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But I've never played a mainline Final Fantasy game. I know people are like, oh my God, Final Fantasy VII is the greatest game ever. How do you dare you? Like, totally get it. 100%. I, like, I, I, I'll own my shame. But anyway, so Lost Odyssey is my first JRPG. And it was the kind of game that really woke me up to the idea that a game can have mature themes. And so you're in this game, right? You're, you're an immortal and you're visiting sort of the place you were and, and your past. And part of the transitions and loadings are like these poems that are said, that stuff like it's really oh, yeah. kind of serene. And But you have this one moment where you go to visit your daughter and your daughter is not immortal. Your daughter is mortal. And, and actually, when you get there, she's sick and she's and you've got two grandkids uh, as well. And so while you're there, your daughter dies and you then have to you have to oversee her funeral. And you basically do that by, and they have gameplay. This is before the F for respects thing. Like, <laughs> it's like, it was like, okay, you're going to play this funeral where you play the grandson who's lighting the people's torches because they're going to burn the <laughs> ribbons that free her boat to send it off into the ocean or whatever. And it was just such a, like the game itself is very funny. And I know there was a lot of stuff. I know the people who recorded it uh, and like, there's a lot of ad libbing and stuff. So the game itself is just, it's funny in nature, but there's very serious parts. And this idea that I'm sitting here presiding over my daughter's funeral was just like, it's like a 17 minute thing that you do. Like you're talking to the guy, you know, the funeral director kind of thing. And you're, and you, and then you go through and you match the torch patterns so that you can light their torch so they can send your daughter off. And it has such a impact on me about what gaming could be. You know, for a lot of time, people look at it as like the Buddha, 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 like, okay, okay, it's all really like cartoony, you know, platforming kind of stuff. Right. And, and so now I'm sitting here and like, why am I crying? Like, it's just like this notion of it had such a, I don't know, it, it resonated really strongly Ooh. with me about what we could do. And, and also that, that idea of like, you know, the idea that immortality is a curse rather than, right. you know, that's, that's something that writers have addressed before in the past, but, but in Lost Odyssey, because they hired a novel, a Japanese novelist, didn't they, to write those poetic bits, it's all about basically how horrible it is to live forever. And, right. and you know, up until that point, I think every video game's like, hey, isn't it awesome to be immortal? <laughs> and it's like, so you are right. It was like a very definite, this is a different way, uh, you know, a more literary way at looking at this theme of immortality. Yeah, I mean, and it's around the time that we were doing the, in Gears 2, we were doing the Dom looking for his wife thing. And so we were, we were trying to hit heavy tone, you know, heavy messages as well. Yeah. And so, you know, flash forward nine months or so, or eight months after this game comes out, Gears 2 comes out. And you know, we, we would do at the Comic-Con go like, who cried at the at the Don Maria scene? And, you know, all these hands would go up. And that's when you realize you can actually reach people and impact people, that it's not just, it's not just this distraction, that you can actually get people emotionally invested. But I don't know, there was just something about that I hadn't seen even adult themes that we've had, like I just, I don't know. There's something about like playing your grandson, sending you know, your mom off to a funeral. Like it was just such a, 
and they took their time doing it. It was mm-hmm. like, as, like right. I said, from the moment you start talking to him about the funeral to the moment you send the boat away, it's, I, I went back and watched it because of, uh, I didn't want to sound stupid on this uh, talking to you. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't read it. It's, it's a 17 minute sequence to, to, to send your daughter off. And it's just like, the fact that they sort of bathed in the moment, it was, I yeah. had a lot of respect for that. Amazing. And we should say it was directed, wasn't it, by uh, Sakaguchi, the creator of Final Fantasy. So the, so in a way, you've played a Final Fantasy game. <laughs> <laughs> in a way, I have. Yeah, exactly. Great. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Di- Diablo then a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I played the game last year, the Diablo 4. Wonderful. Really enjoyed it. Played it all the way through. But, um, you know, the game did have a, a notoriously difficult development and... Uh, in 2022, there was a Washington Post story that you know was talking about some high-profile departures and things. I don't want to get into all of the weeds on that, but yeah, how did that instability and disruption affect you personally? You know, at that point, uh, I mean, it was it, it personally. I mean, it's really about it was hard to go through, like because one of those things that just sort of heartbreaking stories and and being new to the company and you're just like, okay, what's going on and how do I how do I help the team manage through this? Because, you know, the team was so working so hard and so passionately to make the best Diablo game they could for players. And we recognize this could have a huge, this could be very destabilizing for the team and, and our, what our goals were. And, and, you know, so we really just sort of had to like get her, make sure that we were in a, a good place and make sure that we were doing all the right things that people felt safe and that the, we, people were able to do their best work and making the right environment. And then just trying to remove distractions and keeping people focused. And that was the thing that was really amazing about the resilience of the, of the team is that their passion to be able to focus on the game and keep moving forward. Like even just what think about the pandemic, like Diablo 4, that team came together through the we doubled the team size through the pandemic um and because the team was so small when i first joined um same thing for like d2r was shipped diablo 2 resurrected was shipped through the pandemic and so coming up on my four-year anniversary in march and like these last four years have been very sort of tumultuous for a number of different reasons and so it's really been about how as a leader you can allow people to keep making to feel safe and show up authentically and just deliver their best work and that's really been what the focus has been um, both from a team perspective but also like from a culture company perspective as well i mean it's obvious that it, it worked out and the game came out and and didn't have any devastating bugs or anything like that <laughs> but you know from from what you say there and from the other information all around it it's clear that you arrived in a you know quite uh, chaotic situation where were there any points where you thought you'd made a terrible mistake? <laughs> you know, no, I, I think the people that I'd worked with, they were just, they're, I've been very fortunate in my career to get to work with some of the best in the industry pretty much everywhere I go. And even part of that was one of the things when I went to Bioshock Infinite, I, I had been working on Gears of War so much that I kind of felt like, can I only do this with the team at Epic? Can I actually lead another team? And so going into Irrational and being able to lead that team successfully, I was like, oh, okay, it's not a, it's, I have a role in this, like I can do this sort of thing. And, and so the same thing showing up at Blizzard, I, part of being the kind of firefighter closer person it was like, I don't know, I like helping. And so I, I, it's kind of cliche, but that, that problem is an opportunity thing. Like I felt like, <laughs> oh, this is, I have a chance for greater impact. I have a chance to make a difference. And if I can help this team navigate these waters and be able to make the game they want to be able to make like i can i can play a role in that and i can have an impact so 
that was more to me is just like saying that, okay, like this just means that I can have a greater impact here. Great. Right, Rod, let's come to your fifth and your final game then. So this is from 2009. Yeah. So this is similar to Lost Odyssey because, again, I, I go back to games that stuck with me. And so this is Dragon Age Origins. So Dragon Age uh, hadn't yet kind of established itself as the franchise that it is now. But so at the time, we we're uncertain about this game. And I actually was not going to play it because um, I started playing. So the thing about the well, kind of part of the, the hook to Dragon Age Origins is there were like six different cl- classes or characters you could play. And they each had their own origin story. And so you could play the origin story and then off you go to the main game. But there were six unique origin stories. Right. And when I play the one of them, like I think it's the origin story of the Magi or something, but it's like a sorceress who goes off into the Fae. And what, I, I fell asleep playing it because it was so <laughs> slow. And and I was like, I dozed off. And so I kind of said, like, I don't think this is for me. Like, this is just, there's, I don't know. It's not catching me for some reason. But flashback to like 2009, I was like, gamer score mattered back then, back in 2009. It was a point of pride to be able to show like, oh, you got X thousands of points of gamer score. And people were taking like these crappy games that had a full thousand points and like burning through it in four hours. or Like you would do things you like abnormal, you would play abnormal games to get gamer score. Yeah. Lost. So I remember playing that. The TV game for Lost. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There was, yeah, there's one for Avatar that was like, it literally took like two hours to get all thousand points because they had like, 500 point or whatever 100 point you know 10 of them and you just you could get through it in like two hours and mm-hmm. so if you looked on any everybody's game list they all had like <laughs> avatar the last if i ever game on their on their back catalog or whatever so so basically i'm like okay this game i don't think this isn't catching me for whatever although i love fantasy and i am i'm the typical nerd but this for whatever reason this isn't hitting me but they have an achievement for 10 score for each origin story so I'm like, at a minimum, I can get, you know, I can get 60 gamer score if I play through all the origin stories just to see, right? So I'm going to, fine, I'll do that. So I play through each game origin story. Like I said, the, the the one in the Fae, I fell asleep. And I get through five of them and I'm just like, none of these are really catching me and, and really making me interested. And so I'm down to the last one as the City Elf one. And the City Elf one is a very, was surprising to me because it's basically... You know, the humans are the bad guys. The humans show up and they're like, hey, we're taking your women, essentially. And then they take your cousin and take her away. And then you're like, what's going on? And then you're like, so the whole origin story is you talk to some people and you get a sword and you have a plumber goes with you. And you go storm, essentially, the human castle. And you're fighting your way and you're killing all these humans to find your cousin, da, 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 da. And essentially, when you get to the room to save her, quote unquote, save her, you open the door and you've discovered you're too late. They've raped her. 
that notion in a video game, it floored me. Like I, it was the least, I was so expecting this hero's journey of like, aha, I'm here. And she's like, thank God you're my savior. Like all that stuff. I was expecting what you would traditionally get at the, and when I walked in the door and you realize, oh, this has gone horribly wrong and you can't say it's too late to save her. Like you can take her home, but you can't, you know, prevent what happened to her. That hit me so hard. And and so then immediately, like, I'm a city elf and I am pissed off at all humanity and I'm going to hate humans for this entire game and I want to go role play. And it's the first time I really wanted to truly role play in a role playing game where, you know, I wanted to have that. I'm going to take this with me. And the hard. The, so as much as that hooked me and again, much like the Lost Odyssey funeral, like it, it struck me so much as a story point. But then at the same time, it was a wake up call that I couldn't do it. Because it's not very long after that origin story, you go into the world and all the quest givers or a bunch of the quest givers are human. And if I want to grow in experience and I want to grow in power and grow in level, I have to do work for humans. I have to say like, yes, I'll go get your thing for you, fetch quest, or yes, I'll go fight this thing for you. And then all of a sudden I'm I'm kind of being subservient to these people I hate. So now my motivations and the game's construct are at odds. And so I was like, oh, I can't, I can't hold up my 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 end of the bargain because the game of the rules won't let me and it was kind of those things that I, I kind of flash back to every now and again it's the same thing like uh dungeon siege had this idea of a classless system where you got good at what you were by doing it so if you wanted to be an archer you would just kill things with a bow oh, yeah. or if you wanted to be a warrior you kill things with a sword but the problem was is that they would you would so if you said okay i'm going to be a sword and board knight and then they would put a, a people on a ridge shooting arrows at you and you'd go, well, I have to shoot to change to a bow to take them out. And then as you're doing that, all of a sudden your archery level's going up and you're realizing, oh no, I'm becoming an archer. I don't want to become an archer. <laughs> and so that idea of choice and how much choice you actually have, and that's something that I've kind of taken with me about what do the rules of the world force the player to become? Yeah. And it's just, but that idea of like, like I said, I, I don't know, I would say that, okay, if I'm trapped on a desert island, these are the five games that I'd want to have with me, but these are games that have stuck with me that to this day, when I talk to people about gaming experiences I've had, that's breaking into the castle to rescue my cousin. I've told that story dozens of times about how such a big impact that that had on me. And then again, you go into the, the, the achievement hunting part of it, where you end up, you know, at the end of the game, you're around the campfire and you're like, who else can I sleep with to get the achievements for this? You know, like it's like, who else can I romance that I haven't romanced yet? That'll give me that achievement, you know? So it's, it's just, it's sort of a funny sort of dichotomy of that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Jonathan Blow saying, you know, he was, he didn't want achievements in Braid and, but it was a Microsoft cert thing that you had to put them in. So I think it was Jonathan Blow. Anyway, some designer, and uh, because because for that exact reason, you don't want to incentivize players to do particular things. Oh yeah, via sort of extraneous rewards, you you want them to pursue a sort of truth in the game, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, they can have an advantage because they're they're basically advertising for a feature. Right, right. So where I saw positives of achievements were around, hey, there's this thing you don't know like about because it's new in the game. It's an innovation in the game. So if I say go do this thing ten times, then you'll go you know, you'll go and look at what the achievements are and you'll go try it. And then you'll say, oh, I understand this new mechanic. But I, I designed the achievements for Gears early on and I learned that you can break a game with it because if you look at the Gears 1 achievements, there's some multiplayer stuff that 
it just ruined the game because you'd go like, okay, you know, chainsaw a thousand people. And so, you know, <laughs> that's you all would anyone's go, you doing. Would, <laughs> yeah. You would jump into a thing and you're trying to win the match, but this, this, you know, the knucklehead next to you is like not caring. It's just trying to chainsaw people. And you're like, well, why am I trying to win the match? She's like, I'm not, I'm trying to get an achievement. And you're like, oh, okay. We're at odds. And so I, if you look at the achievements from gears one to gears five, I hope you see uh, a maturity about like, okay, how do we, how are we guiding people to new features as opposed to, you know, getting them to do things that are abnormal. Yeah, it's like a game game design element, I suppose, to uh, to achievement design as much as anything else. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, let's go through your console then, Rod. So we've got NHL Hockey, Star Siege Tribes, Halo, Lost Odyssey, and Dragon Age Origins. How are you feeling about that? I feel good. Like I said, it's these are games that impacted me as opposed to like my favorite games of all time like yeah if you're going based on my end of year reports for consoles you know like destiny 2 would be for the last four years was my number one game and then like diablo is the four is my number one game this year like so these aren't my number one games of all time in terms of i want to play forever but these are the ones that sure as a creator and as a human impacted me in some way yeah yeah yeah, if you were playing this on a desert island and went from a game of ice hockey to uh, your daughter's funeral, <laughs> that would be a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Last Odyssey is a long game, but yeah, no, exactly. The, the psychological trauma you'd have on your alone on your island as you're sending your daughter off <laughs> to the waves. Yeah, that's good. Right, we need a name for your console, Rod. What could we What could we call this and market it to the world for everyone to enjoy? <laughs> um uh what right it's such a diverse set of games it's hard to find a connecting theme other than what's you pack it so like we call it the the impact Mm -hmm. something like that how about the closer (laughs) (laughs) uh games that shipped how about that (laughs) amazing right i'm gonna let you go in a second because i've i slightly overrun but um i'm sure you've got nothing important to be doing today anyway not at all not at all. But uh, just just quickly, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, we happen to be talking at a time where there have been lots of changes at the company you work for. So, um, you know, in October, the Microsoft finalised its deal to purchase the company and the CEO, Bobby Kotick, a divisive figure, I think it's fair to say, left the company a few weeks ago. I'm sure you've got your own personal views on those, which I won't ask you about because I don't want to upset any PR people listening. <laughs> but I would, uh, I, yeah, I'm interested in how you feel about the uh, the future of the company as as one era ends and you're at the beginning of this new era. Do you feel positive? Oh, yeah, very much so. Very much so. I mean, it's one of the nice things about, everybody just heard me say the Canadian version of about there, but um, the the I've had two tours of duty with Microsoft before. I did nine years the first time uh, and then six years the second. And so... I've already had 15 years with Microsoft. And so the idea of becoming part of Microsoft again is uh, I'm excited about it. Like I know what the, the company's capable of. Mm. Uh, I've known Phil Spencer for over 20 years and, you know, he's in my destiny clan and I got him through his, his I helped him with his Druid build for D4 and played together. So uh, Matt Booty is awesome. And so I, you know, I, I feel good about it. I, I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm optimistic about what the future is under Microsoft. Great. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing whatever's next and whichever games you're called in to close. (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking requests. No, I'm just kidding. Like my brother would be like, go to fix hockey. And like, I can't do it.
Thank you so much to my guest Rod Ferguson, the legendary producer of some of the biggest games of the last couple of decades. What a complete treat to have him on my perfect console. I didn't know Rod, hadn't spoken to him ever before, but what a lovely chap. I mean, very, very likeable. And uh, you can see very clearly how he has been so successful in his career. Just a real talent for not only managing all those spreadsheets and triaging all those bugs and getting games out the door, but also a very personable individual, I think, who's, uh, from the sounds of things, persuasive and thoughtful and compassionate and empathetic and all those things as well. Uh, very much, you know, the image he painted at the beginning of that conversation of a producer rocking up to a uh, beleaguered development team with a clipboard and ticking off things that they can't do. You could see how, you know, that mode is probably not that helpful when you're working on a multi-million dollar blockbuster video game. And uh, yeah, so just wonderful to get Rod's perspective there. Some of you may have been a little frustrated that I didn't perhaps push him a bit more on some of the details about the uh, notoriously difficult development of Diablo 4 or indeed what we touched on there at the end, the circumstances at Activision Blizzard. In between me speaking to Rod and then this episode coming out, there have been widespread layoffs at Activision Blizzard, as there have across the entire industry. More than 5,000 workers in video games have lost their jobs in just January 2024. Uh, a really dispiriting state of affairs. And, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't get into that because obviously that hadn't quite happened yet, but we didn't get into all of those general changes that are happening at the at the place where Rod works. It's a, yeah, it's a delicate balancing act, I'd say. You know, I want to try and get people who are successful and who work at these big companies onto the podcast. We very, very rarely get to hear about them, certainly not in such an intimate um, forum. And I think to sort of enable that to continue, I have to try and create an environment where people feel safe, where they're not going to be put on the spot, where they're not going to say things that are going to kick up a massive fuss on the internet and cause uh, hundreds of headlines. Of course, we have had some of those before, but, um, you know, for I, I suppose the stakes are higher if you work at one of these major companies with shareholders and all of that stuff. So, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a balancing out between making people feel safe and making companies feel like they can agree to have their representatives come and speak to me like this and of course also me just not being uh, not just you know completely avoiding these more difficult topics and some of the hard questions there was as i mentioned in the tape a, a pr person from activision blizzard or, or at least their agency listening in on the call and she had said to me before we spoke look i i really don't want to intervene but if you bring up anything corporate I'm going to have to chime in and shut it down. So, you know, that's just to be completely transparent. Those are some of the parameters in which that conversation occurred. You know, it's one thing if, you, if you've got someone like Jake Solomon on or um, uh, Peter Molyneux or Dylan Cuthbert. These are individuals who, of course, have all worked for very big game studios and publishers, but who now own their own enterprises. They own their own studios. They don't have to really answer to anyone. They can come on here and say whatever they want. But uh, yeah, for, for people who are still in position at some of those companies, it's a bit more complicated. So anyway, 
I'm, I'm blathering on a bit, but you, you get the point, I hope, of uh, where the where I'm trying to find the line between asking some of those questions and also, you know, not, not causing the whole thing to have the plug pulled on it. Right. It's been an exciting start to the year. I hope you've already enjoyed the spread of guests that we've had so far. Trying to like have a good mix of people who work in the video game industry, people who are in the public eye, uh, and then just other interesting creative people who who love video games. So yeah, it's always trying to like fine tune that balance. But uh, I hope that uh, I hope that you are connecting with some of these conversations. Next week, it's another it's another person who I you probably haven't heard speak publicly before and if you have it won't have been in the context of them talking about some of their best loved games yoshinori kitase he is director of final fantasy 6 on the super nintendo he was producer of final fantasy 7 uh, on the playstation and has worked he'd been a key figure at square enix the japanese company behind the final fantasy series kingdom hearts all of those uh, very well-known games. He's now one of the vice presidents of the studios there, sits on the board. He's a very senior figure and he's speaking to me with all of those hats on, but uh, I suppose most most uh, sort of relevantly because Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, the second episode in the remake of the 1997 game, is imminent. It's out in a couple of weeks so he is sort of speaking to a few journalists around the world. You may have seen some of those sort of interviews. He was at BAFTA uh, a few weeks ago and he's come on my perfect console. What a treat. Wow. How how fortunate. I've spoken to, I've interviewed uh, Yoshinori a few times uh, during my career, but this was certainly the longest time I've ever spoken to him. You know, when you're doing a, he, he I imagine speaks some English, but he wanted to do the interview in Japanese so we had an interpreter and there's a back and forth and the sort of mathematical calculation is that a conversation that uh, would be in English takes twice as long when you're using an interpreter. So we spoke for the best part of two hours uh, in order to get an hour long episode once it's all put together. It's, uh, it's a treat. It's a good one. I think uh, you'll enjoy it. So yeah, come along and uh, listen to that next week. Of course, if you want to hear more about the, the guests that are coming up, why not become a supporter of the podcast? Patreon.com forward slash My Perfect Console. It would be lovely to have you get your episodes early, ad-free, get heads up about the guests that are coming up. And uh, yeah, I am sort of in the planning stage of some, some other bonus content just for the Patreon supporters. So hang tight on that. Uh, it'd be great to have your support. Follow us on social media, all the usual places. Just search for My Perfect Console, you'll find us. Uh, and certainly subscribe if you've got a spare minute. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You can just click a star rating, all of that. It helps other people find the podcast. Okay, I'll be back again next week with Yoshinori Kitase. Until then, have a wonderful week. <laughs>